Well, every year we have a month between Thanksgiving and Christmas that we use to turn our attention to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've often thought it would be really nice if we did the same thing for Easter. The Incarnation is actually built on two great doctrines, not one. First, the virginal conception of Jesus Christ, and second, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The resurrection eternalized the humanity of God, the same humanity that was conceived in Mary's womb. Well, in the providence of God, this year we have come to John chapter 11, four weeks before Easter. And this chapter will indeed prepare our hearts and our minds for understanding what happened Easter morning. But just before you turn there, would you turn instead to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. In John 11, we will discover the longest miracle account in the four Gospels, the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, devote as few as two or three verses to any one miracle. The synoptics emphasize quantity. John, however, wants us to consider the quality of Jesus' miracles. And to that end, he records just seven miracles prior to Christ's resurrection. But he devotes considerable time to each one. In John 9, if you recall, we had 41 verses explaining the healing of the man born blind. In John 11, we'll find 44 verses telling the story of Lazarus. In addition, John 11 will contain further reflection after verse 45 on the aftermath of that miracle. And then in chapter 12, we have even more material on Lazarus. So obviously, the raising of Lazarus is a highly strategic miracle in John's gospel. But I wonder how well we really understand it. What I want to do this morning is get it situated, first of all, with three observations. Three observations to really help us situate this very important miracle. First of all, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh And final sign, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. All that, of course, before the resurrection, the final sign before the resurrection. All right? In John 20, 30-31, John actually explained his gospel's purpose. Look at verse 30 of John 20. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Of Jesus' many signs, John chose seven all of which, upon deeper reflection, pointed to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So let's review them very quickly. Here they are. Number one, turning water to wine. Number two, healing the official son. Number three, healing the man at Bethesda. Number four, walking on water. 
Number five, feeding the 5,000. Number six, healing the man born blind. That was John chapter 9. And here's number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. Again, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh and final sign demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then friend, you have life in his name. And now let's turn to John 11, and let me give you a second observation. John chapter 11 now. Here is a second observation. The raising of Lazarus occurred near the end of Jesus' public ministry. And I have to say that because John 11 doesn't feel anywhere near the end. But actually it occurred right near the end of his public ministry. There are, in fact, 21 chapters in John's Gospel. Chapter 11 is the central chapter, 10 on either side. Now, of course, there are no chapter divisions in the original, but the material in chapter 11 really is the center of the Gospel. However, you don't want to confuse the location of this miracle in the Gospel with its location in Jesus' ministry. We are rapidly approaching the end. In fact, if you'll just glance ahead to the first words of chapter 12, John writes six days before Passover, and that's the Passover in which Jesus died. So, beginning with chapter 12, when we finish Lazarus in chapter 11, Jesus has only six days still to live. Now, there's a little bit of space between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, where several events happen that John does not record. But the point is the same. We are very close to the end of Jesus' ministry. We are at this point perhaps a month or two away from his crucifixion. So think of John 11 as a kind of hinge. It's going to transition us away from Jesus' public ministry. He's going to finish that out to his final days in Jerusalem. If the first half of the book took us on a journey through three years, the second half will take us on a journey through just six days and in the resurrection aftermath. So, again, this is the hinge chapter. And John 11 is going to transition us from an exploration of Jesus' identity to his great work of death and resurrection in Jerusalem. It's fitting, then, that the center of the chapter should concern a sign about the resurrection, a final sign concerning the resurrection. In fact, would you just notice a magnificent statement right at the center of the chapter in John 11 and verse 25? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, I haven't added up all the words in John, but I suspect that somewhere right near the middle of the book. And that wonderful statement just sums up ten chapters of reflection on Jesus' true identity. Who is this man? And it prepares us for those dark days that are coming when Jesus is going to be crucified after he enters Jerusalem during his final week. I am the resurrection and the life. So chapter 11 really then is a crucial transitional passage. In verse 25 really is 
the crucial text. And by the way, not to get too distracted, but we saw something very similar to this in Matthew's Gospel. If you recall, the first half of Matthew's Gospel concerned Jesus' identity. The first 16 chapters really came down to a single question. Here's the question. Jesus put it to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Who is the Son of Man? Who am I? And once Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus just pivoted. He pivoted toward his great work in Jerusalem. And for the first time, Jesus told his followers, I'm going to go to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer many things and die and be resurrected. So Matthew's gospel just split right in half, almost right down the middle. Part one, who is Jesus? Part two, what work will he accomplish in Jerusalem? And really, you're seeing something very similar here in John's gospel. All this focus on his identity, and now let's focus on the great work that lies just on the horizon, his death and his resurrection. So the Gospels really do emphasize both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that leads to a third observation. In John, the raising of Lazarus triggers the final conflict between Jesus and the Jews that culminates in Jesus' arrest, trial, and death. This This is the trigger event. All four Gospels take us on a journey through the final three years of Jesus' life to a cross in Jerusalem. But each of them, especially John, tell the story in their own way. And if you recall from Matthew, the first Gospel emphasized Jesus as king. And the issue that really beat its way to a crescendo through Matthew's Gospel was the issue of authority. Matthew spoke constantly about the kingdom of God. Jesus goes everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. That's a theme that is almost entirely absent in John's gospel. In Matthew, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, a contest over his authority landed him on a cross. But that true king suddenly resurrected with all authority in heaven and earth. What we have seen in John's gospel... The sort of rumbling its way all the way through is not the kingdom, but a fierce conflict between Jesus and the Jews over his identity with the Father. Are you one with the Father? And the Jews have been trying to kill him all the way through John's gospel. In fact, let's just think back for just a moment. Back in John 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus claimed that both he and, quote, my father were working on the Sabbath. And John was emphatic, John 5, 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the cross, friends, was not some sort of last-minute change of fortune for an otherwise popular preacher. Attempts on Jesus' life began very early in his preaching ministry. And they came because he equated himself with the Father. Would you just listen as I read just a few more verses? 
John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 7.25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 7.30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 7.32, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 8.59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 10.31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So clearly the Jews have been after Jesus for a very long time. They are trying to kill this man because he made himself out to be God, one with the Father. Well, keep all those plots against Jesus in mind, and let's actually read the aftermath of the story of the raising of Lazarus. Look down at John 11 and verse 45 and notice what happens. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, he raised Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Imagine that. He just raised a man. Verse 47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is a problem. So what are we going to do? We'll skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now there have been previous plans made to put Jesus to death. But the plans that you just read about in verse 53 are the plans that finally succeed. They will put into motion the events that will finally secure Jesus' crucifixion. And what happens if you believe on Jesus as the resurrection and the life? Well, turn forward one chapter and let's read of a plot to kill, guess who? Lazarus also. Chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's astonishing. And clearly, we are entering some very dangerous times, not only for Jesus, but for his followers, even one who was resurrected. Have you ever read the book of Acts in light of John 12, 9 through 11, the verses we just read? In Acts, Jesus' disciples go everywhere preaching his resurrection, and the church just explodes in its growth. And Acts is generally a very optimistic book. But Acts is also a record of the persecution of Jesus' followers. It's a persecution of anyone who claims that Jesus resurrected. There's a sense in which Acts is the story of Lazarus under a death sentence. If you confess the resurrection, you die. That also is in the book of Acts. 
All right, so all of that, I hope, helps us get the passage situated in context. So let's review. Here we go. First of all, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh and final sign demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Number two, the raising of Lazarus occurred near the end of Jesus' public ministry. And thirdly, the raising of Lazarus triggers the final conflict between Jesus and the Jews that culminate, culminated in his death, I'm sorry, in his arrest, in his trial, and in his death. All right, so with all that in place, let's take up our reading now with verses 1 through 4. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, will really orient us to the whole passage. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So our narrative begins here with Lazarus, identifying him both by his local village and his two famous sisters. In Luke 10, we learn just a bit more about Mary and Martha. When Jesus visited their home, Mary sat at Jesus' feet, while Martha distracted herself with much serving. And of course, you'll probably recall that Martha complained that her sister wasn't helping. And Jesus famously replied that Mary had made the wiser choice. Now here we learn that these two sisters have a brother, and his name is Lazarus, and that they lived in Bethany. Bethany lay on the east side of the Mount of Olives, about two miles from Jerusalem. Again, this is very dangerous territory down in Judea, dangerous territory for Jesus. Now, verse 2 further identifies Mary as the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And actually, this is a puzzling identification when you consider that John has yet to relate the story of Mary anointing the Lord. He doesn't tell the story until the next chapter. So why on earth does John reference an identifying story before he's even told the story? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. In Matthew's Gospel, Mary's act of generosity is so well known that Jesus says, wherever this Gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It was a very famous story. And Jesus said it's going to get a lot of traction. And apparently that's exactly what happened. The story of Mary's lavish love for Jesus had widely circulated through the church. And that was so much the case that John can refer to it as a story that everyone already knows, even though he hasn't told the story in context yet. Really quite remarkable. Now, verse 3 also speaks of Jesus' special relationship with this family. Look at the words, Lord, the Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we wish we knew more. D.A. Carson writes, the verse hints at friendships and relationships that are barely explored in the Gospels. 
The gospel writers do indeed have a mission to present Jesus to the world as God, as King, as Savior, and as Lord. They don't pause long enough to explore all the facets of Jesus' personality and his relationships. We wish we had more. John told us if we knew everything, the world itself couldn't contain all the books. But these little glimpses, right, these little windows speak of a person who loved and who cared deeply for individuals. Jesus had deep relationships. He had wonderful friendships. He whom you love is ill. This man whom Jesus loved, Lazarus, was ill. And we know from reading on that this illness led to death. This is no minor illness. So if that's the case, then what does verse 4 mean? But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, if Lazarus died, which he clearly did die because you can't resurrect a living person, why does Jesus claim this illness does not lead to death? That really is a crucial statement. And the answer to that question will come in a moment. All right, If you'll hold on to that question, I'll answer it a little bit later in the sermon. But suffice it to say here that Jesus intends to redefine the terms life and death. That's what he's doing. And that's part of the reason this passage is so strategic in John's Gospel. This passage isn't merely about Lazarus. God is about to accomplish something glorious. And the resurrection of Lazarus is just just a glimmer of what's to come. It's like that first ray of sunlight that just pierces the dark horizon before the sun rises in all of its glory. This is just a glimpse of something much greater to come. So hold on to that question, and we'll come around to it momentarily. What then became of the sisters' plea for help for their brother? Well, let's read verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, verse 6 might be interpreted as callousness toward Lazarus if it were not qualified by verse 5. Whatever we make of Jesus staying for two days longer before coming to his aid, we do not assume that that Jesus failed to love Lazarus and his sisters. That's not what's going on here. Verse 5 really sets you up to understand and not misinterpret verse 6. More than likely... Jesus simply delayed because he knew, probably by some divine revelation, that Lazarus was in fact already dead. There was no need to hasten to Bethany to save a dying man. Lazarus was dead. But why am I saying that? Well, later in the chapter, verse 39, we're told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. When Jesus arrived to resurrect him, he'd already been dead four days. However, here in verse 6, we're told Jesus waited two days before setting out for Bethany. 
Well, how do you turn two days in the four? Well, remember, at the end of chapter 10, we learn that Jesus left Jerusalem and went across the Jordan. Of course, we cannot pinpoint his precise location, but we know from verse 7 that he was beyond Judea. He's quite a ways out. This means that he is probably some 40 or more miles away from Lazarus, from Bethany. And it would take some time, probably two days, for a messenger to leave Bethany and to come find Jesus with the news that Lazarus was ill. When the messenger arrived and reported the illness, right? he knew this from two days ago, he reports the illness, probably in the meantime, Lazarus had already died. And Jesus knew it. If Jesus then waited for two days from that moment, Lazarus is dead, Jesus waits two days, And then it takes another two days to go that 40 miles or so back to Bethany by foot. All right, Lazarus at that point has been dead for four days. That's probably how the chronology works out. All right, so again, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. He probably understands the messenger's news is old. Lazarus has already died. And Jesus is going to take four days now to go back and to reach him. And we'll discover next week why those four days are so important. All right? Now, verses 7 through 8 tell of the disciples' reaction to Jesus venturing again into Judea. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Look at the reaction. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Now, remember the danger that Jesus has been in from the beginning. The disciples' reaction really picks up on that. Disciples are actually appalled by Jesus' plan. I mean, going back to Judea, isn't that a death sentence, Jesus? And Jesus' response is found in verses 9 through 10. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, what is that all about? And how is that a response to the disciples, not wanting to go to Judea? Well, before the advent of modern timekeeping with precision instruments, both the Romans and the Jews typically divided the day into 12 hours. 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of nighttime. And during the daylight hours, most people did their work. And of course, before the invention of the light bulb, night shift, as we think of it today, was almost unheard of, unless perhaps you were in the military or some sort of guard duty. People worked when the sun was up, and they retired when the darkness descended over the land. It was just that simple. To work at night was almost a guarantee that one's just going to stumble about. How could one build a wall or plant his field or take his clothes for washing if he couldn't see? It's just the way people lived. And that's the literal meaning of Jesus' response. But of course, there must be a deeper level of meaning that Jesus intends here. How, again, is his response to the disciples' amazement? How is his response to all that? Well, probably in context, Jesus is acknowledging that he is coming to the end of his labors. The sun is swiftly setting on his earthly ministry. 
And Jesus knows good and well that the dark hour of his crucifixion is just looming just right over the horizon. But Jesus' ministry is not quite over. He's not done yet. He still has one great miracle to perform. He is the light of the world. Back in John 8, Jesus claimed, I am the light of the world. He also said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So think of those words as Jesus makes his way now into that shadowy realm of Judea, showing us the path to life. What does that look like? Jesus is the light of the world, the light of life. And he is coming back now into the darkness of Judea, And he is going to show us a path forward through this great sign. The sign of the resurrection. He has one great miracle still to perform in the final hour of his ministry. The night hasn't fallen quite yet. That seems to be the sense of what Jesus means. And it is true that Jesus just labors with a sense of divine protection. So long as he's just going about his father's business, he is immune to death. He has a job to do. And so I'm going to go right back to Judea. I've got to be the light. I've got to show people the way forward. I'm going to accomplish the father's will while I still have daylight. And only then, when my job is done, will the Jews plot finally succeed. Now, given all that, there is one great doctrine the disciples remain clueless about, even though Jesus has mentioned it previously. Jesus still needs to teach his disciples the meaning of resurrection. We'll spend a lot more time with this next week, but what exactly is resurrection? What is life after death? In fact, what is death? What is that? Friends, living as we do some 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and living as we do with 27 additional pieces of revelation called the New Testament, we understand the answer to these questions a whole lot better than the disciples did. Would you turn for just a moment to Luke chapter 18 and let me show you something very interesting. Luke chapter 18. On three separate occasions, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. He said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect for three days. The gospel writers make it clear that the disciples did not understand him. One of those occurrences I referenced earlier was in Matthew 16. Now, would you read very carefully what Luke records as Jesus is making his final move toward Jerusalem? This is the third time he mentions his death and resurrection. Look at Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. What does that mean? And do the disciples understand? Verse 34. 
they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. The twelve still do not understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three times Luke insists they did not understand. I mean, he really makes it clear. Look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. The same was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. Now, let me give you a very important fact. Chronologically, Luke 18, the passage we just read, are you ready for this? Comes after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Then he left Jerusalem. Remember I said the little space between chapter 11 and chapter 12? All right? He left for a very short time. John 11 and verse 54 tells us he left uh, Jerusalem after raising Lazarus. He goes away for a short time, and then he returns for that final Passover. And that return is what we just read about here in Luke 18. So what you just read comes after the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. All right? All that to say, the disciples still have much to learn about what death and resurrection is all about. Even when Jesus is making that final approach to his cross. So with that in mind, let's turn back to John 11. And let's understand the disciples at this point really truly are ignorant of what Jesus is going to accomplish. With all that in place, I think we can safely say that the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection is not merely about bringing a dead man back to life. This isn't just sort of a random sign. It's actually the beginning of a complete reorientation of how we're supposed to think about life and death. This is when the whole reorientation begins. John 11 is the beginning of a transformation of the disciples' thinking that will not be complete until after Easter. And in fact, even after Pentecost, And in fact, even then, we still need the Apostle Paul to come along and continue the reorientation with very important passages like Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. There's a whole transition here that's going to take place over decades as we rethink what death and resurrection is all about. So clearly, the disciples do not understand Jesus' own death and resurrection. That's Luke 18. And if they don't understand what's about to happen to Jesus, and how can they possibly understand what's going to happen to Lazarus? They are still clueless. All right? So, remember what I asked earlier about verse 4. I said I would come back to it in a moment. Verse 4, why does Jesus claim this illness does not lead to death when Lazarus obviously died? Well, let's explore that. In verse 11... Jesus begins, I emphasize that word, Jesus begins to answer that question. I say begin because his own resurrection is part of the explanation. Paul's writings are part of the explanation. But for now, would you just notice how Jesus redefines the terms life and death? 
for the believer. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus confused them on purpose. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Well, friends, how many Christian funerals have you been to where the pastor refers to a believer falling asleep in Jesus? You've all heard that. How many painful memorial services are punctuated with moments of joy at the thought of a loved one just waking up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? The fact is, we are just, we're just so accustomed to thinking this way that we really fail to realize that this, this is really a radical idea. This is a radical idea in a culture that's immersed in the Darwinian worldview. And in Jesus' day, the equivalent of Darwin was a Greek poet named Epicurus and his Latin counterpart named Lucretius. These ancient Epicurean authors argued that the body, like Darwin thought, is composed of atoms. That's it. And when we die, our atoms dissolve into the void and they will never be reconstituted. Death is final. Death is terminal. Death is irreversible. Death is the gateway to eternal oblivion. So it's into that cultural context that Jesus says, you know, death, well, that's like falling asleep. How many of you have ever fallen asleep? We do that all the time, at least once a day or once a service, some of you. I don't even know. <laughs> I know. We changed the clocks for it. I get it. All right? It's just a normal part of life. We just do it. We just fall asleep. We sleep, we awake, and we continue our life's journey. And Jesus says, actually, that's just what happened to Lazarus. Now, of course, the disciples don't get it. So in verse 12, they exclaim, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, of course, there's a hole in their logic. Just because a sick person falls asleep does not mean that he will recover. In fact, quite the opposite. Terminally ill patients often fall into a deep sleep or even into a coma before they cross that ragged border of death. The disciples here are probably making this illogical leap because they really just don't want to go back to Judea. They assume, like Thomas in verse 16, that to return to Judah, Judea, that's, that's a death sentence. Let's just, let's just not go back. All right? But having said that, let's again return to the question, why does Jesus refer to Lazarus as sleeping? Verse 13 is clear. Lazarus was, in fact, dead. But Jesus uses a metaphor that deliberately confuses his disciples. So clearly, Jesus is thinking differently about death than his disciples. Jesus has come to transform death. Jesus has come to reorient the way that we think about death. Now, remember what Jesus said way back in John chapter 8 and verse 51? Listen to these remarkable words. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Friends, that moment that the believer just passes from death 
to life is so instantaneous, it just dissolves into nothing. It's like trying to mark that exact moment when you fall asleep at night. Ever try that? It's really hard. You've fallen asleep thousands of times, but you can never quite pin down that moment. It's a very smooth transition from one state to the next. It's as if there's just nothing in between. You're awake, and then you're asleep. Well, in this case, you die, you fall asleep, and you're awake that quickly. Think of your death that way. There's life, then there's death, and then there's the immediate presence of the Lord. That, that death moment in between is just so narrow, it collapses into nothing. It's so narrow that it's like it's not even there. You never even see death. So Jesus is on a mission to dissolve death into utter insignificance for the believer. The Puritan preacher John Owen referred to that mission as the death of death and the death of God. Jesus dissolved our own deaths into his so that it's just like falling asleep, waking up in the presence of God. And so, my friend, can Jesus actually do that for you? And the answer is yes. And that's why John included the resurrection of Lazarus as his final authenticating sign that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, by the way, Lazarus is not resurrected eternally at this point. But the point is, Jesus can actually call a dead body back to life. If he can summon Lazarus up from the grave, well, then certainly he has power over the grave. That much is true. And Jesus really wants his doubting disciples to understand this. In fact, on one level, Jesus was glad that Lazarus had died in order that he might demonstrate the power of the resurrection in Lazarus. That was verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Now, this is not callous. Jesus wept over Lazarus, of course. All right? But Jesus is really glad that his disciples, right, right here at the very end of his ministry, are going to learn an incredibly true doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ. He can, in fact, resurrect dead bodies to life. That, my friends, is the larger story of Easter. Easter is not merely what happened to Jesus after the crucifixion. I mentioned in our Colossians series that Easter is not merely the epilogue to the Gospels. Don't read the Easter accounts that way. Oh, Jesus died and all the important stuff happened. And oh, yeah, whatever happened to him? Oh, that's the epilogue. He rose again. No, no, no. That's not what it is, right? Easter is the beginning of a whole new creation where Christ, the firstborn from the dead, to quote Colossians, resurrects all of his children to permanent, incarnate, new creation life. Now, friends, can we take our final hymn this morning? And really make this our application. We sang this last week because I intended to preach this sermon last week and I never got to it. But our final hymn is Christ, Your Hope, and Life and Death. And sometimes I think we, we sing these final hymns and it's like, well, that's just what you do at the end of the service, right? It's that nice sort of transition moment, right? The preacher's done, sing a hymn, right? And then we go get our coffee, all right? Well, actually, these hymns, right? These hymns really can be the application of the message, 
All right, so I asked John if we could sing this hymn again today. Maybe we'll sing it a few more times between now and Easter. I don't know. But can we really allow the words of this hymn to be the application? Can we affirm these words as the application of what we just learned? Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Lazarus. We thank you for this extraordinary sign that points to an even greater resurrection still to come in the Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we enter this Easter season, Lord, I pray that our hearts would just be lifted up with joy at the thought that we have already died and resurrected with Christ. And that because we are united with Him, that we too will resurrect with Him in our bodies And we will enjoy permanent, incarnate, new creation life. Lord, I just pray that this Easter season would be a wonderful, delightful season for our members here. And pray for anyone here, Lord, who uh, may as yet not believe in the resurrection. That during the next several weeks, as we explore Lazarus and as we contemplate the suffering of Christ, and then the resurrection on Easter, that this might be a time in anyone's life here, Lord, who is not a believer yet, that they might give serious consideration to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.